Hello, and thank you for listening to the MicroBinFi podcast. Here, we will be discussing topics in microbial bioinformatics. We hope that we can give you some insights, tips, and tricks along the way. There is so much information we all know from working in the field, but nobody writes it down. There is no manual, and it's assumed you'll pick it up. We hope to fill in a few of these gaps. My co-hosts are Dr. Nabil Ali Khan and Dr. Andrew Page. I am Dr. Lee Katz. Both Andrew and Nabil work in the Quadrum Institute in Norwich, UK, where they work on microbes in food and the impact on human health. I work at Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and am an adjunct member at the University of Georgia in the U.S. Hello, welcome to a new thing we are doing called Software Deep Dives, where we interview the author of a bioinformatics software package. Today, Hankton Bakker is in the hot seat with Sepia. He's an assistant professor at the University of Georgia. That's this state, not the country, in the U.S., I work with him through the Food Safety Informatics Group at the University of Georgia. Hank's an alum of the Women Lab and, and has a rich history working on, on things like Listeria and Campylobacter. I think, correct me if I'm wrong uh, later on, please, but I think, I think fungi and a lot of other things out there. So he got, he got into computational biology and bioinformatics from working on all these different things. And we're interviewing him today on Sepia. So first of all, Hank, what is Sepia? So I, I pronounce it Sepia, but it, so it's not to cor- correct you. Sepia is a, I would say, yet another read classifier. That, that's what it is. And why do we need it? So, so one of the, the things... Being a taxonomist and some, somebody who uses read classifiers a lot, there were just a lot of things that I wanted to have in a read classifier that I didn't have yet. So I wrote a CPI to just address all those things. So CPI uses a, a couple of data, data structures. One of them is the complex has table that Kraken2 uses. And actually some of the principles or algorithms that Kraken 2 uses to classify reads. And one of the, 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 I think, main components in read classification is the use of taxonomy. And taxonomy is very important. And I'm a taxonomist by training. So um, integrating new taxonomies, for instance, the uh, GTDB taxonomy versus the NCBI taxonomy. There are several taxonomies currently that are being used in the, the metagenomic field and seeing how that influences your ability to classify reads and especially reads that are from organisms that are not necessarily well known. That, that really um, interests me. So it, it's a tool to experiment with those things. The other thing is that I'm interested in data structures. So how can we, the compact hash table of Kraken2 is already pretty compact, but can we make that compact more compact with things like combining it with something like a a perfect hash function? So CPI has those things. So maybe to step back a little bit, um, you say hash table there. So how are you actually storing the sequence information how are you encoding it so the sequence information currently it's encoded in bits so we have basically the compact hash table or the the hash table with the, the perfect hash function is one big factor containing unsigned 32 integers and we can use those unsigned uh, 32 integers to store both information of part of the sequence and the associated taxon that goes along with those sequences. So we first hash the sequence and then we use that hash to find the position in that factor. And then we use either the, the hashed value of the sequence of your minimer uh, to, to confirm that really 
or part of your sequence to confirm if that's a good match or not. So how long so, would your cameras be then in that case? Um, so currently my cameras can go up to um, 31 base pairs, but so you don't use the full 31 base pairs. And one of the things that I'm excited about is that I can actually can extend the size of cameras. So we can go up to uh, 64 base pairs. Like the, the, the language that I'm using Rust has signed 128 value. So we should, should be able to make it even bigger. I don't know if that affects the performance of the, the software, but so I got really excited when I looked at your code and I saw this is Perl uh, because it has many of the same constructs as Perl and similar kind mm -hmm. of uh, layouts and syntax and whatnot. But I was very disappointed then when you, you told me you'd abandoned Perl for some other, you know, frivolous fly-by-night language called Rust. Can you tell me more about that? So Rust, let's see. Is, so first, I have to explain the probably explain the reason that I I never abandoned Perl. Like I Good. can read Perl. I write most of my scripts and things like that. Where Python is fast enough, I use Python. That's my go-to language at the moment. But if I write code that really is performance critical, and I want to. Um, a read classifier. I want to classify a couple of million of reads and, and, and tens of data sets within a limited amount of time. That's where I use Rust. So if we go to the Rust website, they, they say it much better than me. Like they, they say a language empowering everyone to build a reliable and efficient software. And I think you can really with Rust, you can really get to get the, you can get the same performance out of Rust as uh, C and C++. You can get at that level. It seems and to so be it's a, with some types uh, thrown in on top of that. Yes, so it's a compiled language. Awesome. I, I don't see, actually, which parts are you seeing that have Perl on it? Like, I feel like it, when I started learning it going from Perl to Rust, I was like, it just blew me away. Like I had to go step by step in the tutorial and learn a whole new language. Mm -hmm. I Well, the way I see it is, you know, you look at, it says use and then library and then a semicolon, you know, that's very pearly. True, true. Okay. Which it got me. And then, you know, all the, uh, the curly brackets and stuff like that, you know, it is a very beautiful language actually. Yeah, I think so. I got, honestly, like my experience was getting so frustrated with it, but like, being just like gobsmacked when it was performing. Like I, I translated my Perl over to Rust and I got like a 10 or 20 fold speed increase. That's insane. Yeah, this language is insane. Sorry, back to back to you, Hank. Yes, <laughs> so so that that's absolutely, that's the reason I chose it. I mean, the other thing is, is I can read C++, I can read C just to look at algorithms and at the details of some people's codes. But what always frustrates me to is to skip between files like your header files and whatever you need. Here you just have one file. That's where your code is. And it's not overly verbose like Java either, where you have to put in a million different objects and then stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Yep. Okay, so uh, maybe let's get back to why you didn't just use Kraken 2 and why you went and uh, made up your own classifier. So I, I think Kraken 2 is fabulous and it's fast, but there are just things. I don't know if, if it already exists, but one, one of the things that, that frustrated me was that there wasn't a batch mode. So if you start a Kraken 2 run, the first thing that, that the software does is load the, the index or database, whatever you want to call it. And if it's large, and no matter how big your computer is, that takes a long time. That 
usually takes longer than the actually the, the actual action of classifying your reads. Absolutely. Yeah. So, 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 so one of the things CPI can do is just a batch mode where that loading the database is done once and then you can specify tap-delimited files with your, your uh, sequence data and, and your sample names and it will just do it in one go. So it takes like a minute to, to uh, load your whatever 80 to, to 90 gig index. And then it takes like 10 seconds per sample to, to classify the reads and give you nice summary files and all those things. So um, one thing with rate classifiers I find is that you can have bits that are shared by different species, like maybe mm -hmm. mobile genetic elements or yep. AMR genes, avergence genes or whatever. And that can sometimes throw some weird curveballs, and it's just influenced by the number of samples that happen to be sequenced. So like say salmonella causing mm -hmm. ornillus, that's massively yep. over represented than just generic salmonella you find in the soil. So how does your, your classifier work in that case? In that case, it, it will just be as bad as other classifiers. That's the other thing that I'm, I'm very focused on indexes that, that use reference type or not type strains, but reference strains instead of like trying to index all of salmonella, take it like a median and centroid strain from a population and use that as a reference that takes away some of those genera being overrepresented, but you still have that, that same problem. If you use hyperlog log, for instance, to estimate how many camers are, or how many minimizers, whatever, are, are represented by some of those, those elements. Say you, you, you sequence um, a, a soil microbiome, and you run your read classifier and you have like a hundred thousand reads that match salmonella. But it turns out that those hundred thousand reads, all hundred thousand reads should be enough to, to cover like a, a salmonella genome several times. But if you find that actually it's a subset of the camers, a small subset, say 2000 camers compared to the whole genome, would be like 4 million, 5 million camers, then you can say it's probably a shared gene instead of the organism itself. So I'm working on that currently. The other thing that I find really helpful that I, I that standard currently that I started to, to integrate into uh, CPI from the start is what I call a hit ratio. So a, a minimizer-based estimate of the Kamer similarity, average Kamer similarity of your reads compared to the reference strain or the strains that, that are classified, uh, the reads are classified as such. So kind of and like a MASH uh, score of some description. Exactly, yes. It correlates really well with, with ANI. So an average really nucleotide identity. And I find that really useful to, to see if, one, if you have a really high score, since you're working with Cambridge, that, that's something between like uh, 0 0.8, 99. You never get a one unless you have like exactly the same strain that you recovered from the metagenome. You have a pretty good indication that you have that organism. The other thing is that you can filter out a lot of the noise. So if you have these read classifiers, things get classified as, it's usually over-classified. So these classifiers always go to the lowest level that you can get. But if you have like a camera similarity of 0.01, you know that's clearly noise and that's, that's just the, the read classifier being not that great. <laughs> being very, uh, oh, yeah, doing, doing its, its over-classification thing. Do you, um, just switching gears for a second, if you feel like it, do you, do you want to give any hints on what you've been using CPF for on any applied research? So currently I'm working on some metagenome projects, like 
um, using metagenomics to predict species that like animal intrusion in farmlands and using metagenomics to predict like how long ago that animal dropped its feces on your on your land. We're working on mapping the microbiome of the, what is it, of the retail environment. So at the, 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 the far end, the, actually of the, 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 the farm to food um, continuum in food safety. So, and see how we can, can relate microbiome data to the occurrence of, of things like Listeria or Salmonella. And uh, where I use CPI there is if I have 16S data sets within seconds, I can quickly scan through data set and pick out reads of interest. That's especially with like an AMPCON database, if you use 16S, that's super, super fast. You don't even need the, the batch mode there. Have you um, used it for coronavirus yet? No. And I know it can do coronavirus. Yes. So I suppose that'll be the, the, the next thing you need for your paper when you write it up. Uh-huh. It's coronavirus uh, capable. I made sure of that. Awesome. Yeah. Because yeah. you're going to get that everywhere, I'd imagine, at some point. Mm -hmm. The reagents contamination will be coming through and, and whatnot. Yeah. Yes. So tell me, go, going back to your, um, I suppose animal droppings uh, and food safety bit, does that mean that say if you get maybe contaminated lettuce or on a cantaloupes or whatever, that you can give some kind of classification and where that might've come from? Yes and no. One of the, the first things I did for that project was see how long like the, the, the native uh, microbiota of animal droppings. So that's in particular in, indicative of, of, of what species uh, was associated with those droppings, how, how, how fast that disappears. So what you see first in the first couple of days is that most of the, the, the typical obligate anaerobes disappear. They're, they're the most indicative, I think. But I was quite surprised. So it, it depends. It depends how long ago that the, the fecal contamination occurred. That that's basically the so I mean if you think about foodborne pathogens like salmonella, uh, listeria, and E. coli, they're they're actually some of the the species that I found in that data set, especially we had some nice, nice Ascarichias that last the longest. So with listeria, um, I always, or I've always heard that it's very difficult to take from the environment and you have to, you know, do an overnight culture, that kind of thing. You can't mm -hmm. just pick it up yep. off the ground and, or in a factory and do something with it. So how are you, what type of samples would you be dealing with in that case? So that's absolutely true. So all those, those data sets were what we're currently doing. So you find listeria and you find it in, in small numbers, even in, in data sets that you sequenced without any prior enrichment. So what we've done for a couple of these projects is that we did a cultural enrichment. So that takes actually a lot longer than an overnight culture and all those things. Side so it's cultural side. enrichment yes. like uh, where Americans go abroad and share their culture? <laughs> oh, I have to um, Sorry. Restrain, restrain myself there. <laughs> Growing up in the Netherlands. Uh, yes, so culture enrichment it, it, it it, it, it means that, that you get a, a sample and you expose it to an environment that, that's positively affecting a, a few organisms or your organisms of interest. So it, it can be by using certain antibiotics 
the medium, etc. So for for listeria, that would typically be initially an overnight culture, and it it takes at least a couple of days to to get from like a soil sample to your to your listeria cultures. Okay, so maybe let's get deep into mm-hmm. the technical bit, right? Yes. And I, I, I recall that you were involved somehow in Big Z uh, with Zamek. Mm-hmm. D- did his kind of work influence you in any way? Absolutely. I have another piece of software called, and it's also in Rust, um, it's called Color ID. And it uses a, a version of, of Big Z that's in, uh, a Rust version that can be actually downloaded as a crate it's 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 publicly available so it it builds a bixi in memory so it, it's an in-memory uh, use of of a bixi so you have your index it gets loaded in memory and and that makes it really really fast so it, you cannot make bixis that are as as big as like the entire sra and cbi's sra but you can can index 10,000 of, of, of strains in a relatively small data structure. That kind of terrifies me because I know that Big Z at one point is running on a half a terabyte of RAM. Exactly, yeah. So, so and, how, much and, RAM, how much RAM does your algorithm require? <laughs> that all depends on how many accessions you have. To be able to to do that just out of the top of my head, <laughs> like let's see. So if you have, if we're talking, are we talking about Bixi now or about? We're, we're talking about Sepia. Sorry, Sepia. Sepia. Okay, Sepia. So a small data set. Let me quickly. So if we have, for instance. I guess what I'm asking is, can I run it on mm-hmm. my laptop or do I need a bigger virtual machine to run it on? That all depends. <laughs> so if you want to do, say, all the, the, the current GTDB version R202, so the latest version of, and you want to have something with all reference strains, here we have 50,000 references. So they, they are everything, archaea, bacteria. They, they include everything from cultured organisms to uh, metagenome amplified genomes. Any humans? Not yet. <laughs> so I, but if we look at the GTDB database with sepia, so that, that is 98 gigabytes and that has to be loaded into your ram so yeah. it won't work on my laptop it won't work on your laptop no but 98 gigs is quite good actually compared to i know kraken can require a fair whack of ram mm-hmm. yes but here's the thing so i some of the things that i've been experimenting with is that the, the Kamer size versus the, the, the minimizer size and how much that influenced the accuracy of your read classification. Like after playing around with some values, a Kamer of 31 and a minimizer size of, of 21 actually gets you a, a, a significantly smaller database, even if you use the same values in, in, in Kraken. So is that kind of indicating like there might be people who might want to know what the parameters are for lower memory or those who want to have it absolutely faster or... absolutely yep so yes. are you kind of are you kind of documenting that or detailing that yes I will we know yeah. and I forgot if we actually said that on the recording but we literally just got access to the to, to sepia um, just as we started uh-huh. this podcast so we're yes. kind of talking and looking at the same time. Yes, and I really <laughs> like these these talking about these things I, because I'm literally writing the markdown, the, the updated and extensive markdown. So one of the things since I've I've been working on this over several years is that 
the, the help functions are really, really helpful. And I can tell you that because there are things that I didn't remember from, let's <laughs> say, over a year ago. And I look at my help function and, oh my. So everything works with, with the help function. Well done for doing it right. And, and I have to say that one of the things that makes it really easy is this one crate. What do you mean by a crate? Is that like a container or something? Or? Uh, crates are, are pieces of our, our functions, software, containers, not really containers, but... Um, are they close um, to like library files? Yes, they're library files that you can download from the from a central depository. Could they not just have said libraries or or modules? Mm -hmm. Yeah, they they call them crates. Grand. So, yeah, and and you get them at crates.io. Yeah, and and so the the crate that that's responsible for me writing good help functions is actually called clap so <laughs> <laughs> the clap crate is, is is fabulous so something that i wish probably tell people is that uh we're recording this and you guys are in the middle of uh is it a hurricane or a tropical depression or something with tornado it's, warnings by now it's a tropical depression and it i think it's about just past us so it's the tropical or tropical depression threat and yes there were tornado warnings this 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 morning and flash flood warnings and so it's dedication that uh you're, you're on this podcast absolutely yes <laughs> absolutely yeah. i have to cross some streams and It's, I'm what, like 30 miles away from Hank right now, and we're getting, um, I guess it's, it's just like really, really wet. We're, we're fortunate that we're pretty inland, but it, it was thundering and lightning and everything early this morning. Did you have any different kind of experience over there? Nope. The same, same here. It's, it's really, it kind of sucks when you have to take out the dogs in the morning. So I have three dogs and they don't like rain. They don't how, like rain. How do you how do you do it, Hank? How do you bring them out? I just drag them out, and we go for a small walk instead of a longer walk. But the, the thing is, is that um, they may not do their business outside because they refuse to. They don't like rain. Now the question is: Have you sequenced their business? I haven't sequenced my own business yet. I think there there are some people at CDC that are still interested, probably. And oh yeah, I'm yeah. I'm not supposed to advertise it, but if you ask me offline, I'll tell you how you can donate if you're here locally. Uh -huh. Yeah. So sorry, are, are we still talking about dogs or about humans <laughs> here? Uh huh. Oh, Hank switched it to human. <laughs> I, yeah, we're we're talking about my business, so. <laughs> We, we uh, also in Quadrum look for anonymous donors as well to, to donate yeah. regularly. Amazing. Do you get a lot of donors yeah. over there? I know this is a tangent. <laughs> well, th there is quite a big requirement for ethical poo so that you can do um, R&D, that kind of stuff. Have you guys donated? Me? No, no, no. Ah. It's, it's anonymous. It has to be anonymous. It's anonymous. There we go. Yeah, same here. I, yeah. I donated it anonymously and nobody knows it's mine. <laughs> we're we're going to go rooting through now the uh, NCBI to see can we find Lee's poo. Yeah. yeah. They, yeah, yeah. They're supposed to have scrubbed the human DNA, but I feel like that's... We, I... we all know that can be problematic. Yes. Uh -huh. Yes. Because people use, you know, things like Kraken just to find a human reads. Maybe they should uh, use sepia. Yep. Yeah, because that's one of the things that I, I have one function that I want to add, and that's the read filter. And that would be, it, it, 
it's going to be integrated into CPI. And now I'm going to have it as a standalone. So have you written a paper on this yet? No. So I'm, I'm working on a million papers. <laughs> so I, after this, I will, will get something out as soon as possible. Yeah. Grand. So uh, yeah. in, in the fullness of time, you'll write a paper. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe whenever we're locked in the next time for the next hurricane. Yes. <laughs> or right, next so, lockdown. I, I think that's mm-hmm. always the thing with writing software. You're writing loads of code and potentially help functions. And then you have to write a paper. I mean, there are a couple of, of, of neat things. For instance, the, the data structure that, that, that uh, uses the perfect hash function uh, needs to know the set of all k-mers or minimers um, uh, that you want to index for the perfect hard uh, hash function. So, I wrote a uh, variation on the compact hash map, and that's the compact hash set. So it's a set that can take gigantic, ginormous uh, numbers of, of, of k-mers or whatever. Um, and just, you can infer the set of all k-mers in your data set before you start building your, your hash map. So yeah. can you take two different databases and then do set operations on them and say, basically start doing like GWAS? Oh, we're onto something here actually now. That would be interesting. I haven't thought about that. Yeah, because you know what's in mm-hmm. common, what's different, and mm-hmm. then extract them out, and then maybe go and mine for interesting things. Mm-hmm. Yes, that shouldn't be too hard. And if you can do more complex set operations, you can do some pretty phenomenal things. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay, off we go. Implement that, and uh, we'll we'll write the nature paper done. Uh huh. Are you that trying? Sounds, to... That sounds quite similar to Unifrac. Mm-hmm. I don't know that one. It's just the distance metric between biological yes. communities. You're just feeding it in the number supporting each taxa, and then it just meshes everything together okay so i mean if you if you could take this and just make the right uh, right output mm-hmm. and it could just plonk straight into into that kind of software so what would that look like i mean you could have like a set of reference genomes which are your cases a set of reference genomes are your controls and then you say, okay, go and build me two separate databases, then get, say, the intersection or whatever is not in mm-hmm. the intersection. And then you have like a unique database, maybe for finding Listeria or, or whatever. That would be pretty cool. Mm-hmm. So are you trying to scoop yeah. yourself on Plasmatron? It's basically Plasmatron <laughs> oh, that I'm yeah. reinventing here, but uh-huh. uh, obviously done in a better way because Plasmatron was very much hacked together. Yeah, I, I use Unif- Unifrac a lot these days in my microbiome work. Yeah, yeah. I was curious that you were talking earlier, much earlier, about the batch, uh, being able to run uh, samples through in a batch. And then I noticed in the source code that you've got some callouts to Redis. Is that what's underwriting that? Or what's your use of Redis no. in this? Uh, Reddish. So th- this is one of the, the, the leftovers. What did I use? Oh, yes. Here, before I started building my own compact hash set for those big things, I tried to do it with Redis, but it ran out of. Okay. Basically, I couldn't use that to set operations there. So that's actually vestigial. Part two. Yeah. All right. There's a lot of vestigial uh, stuff in the current code. Right. which I may remove. So Redis, uh, for those who don't know, this is like, it's an in-memory or it's like a cache data structure store. And basically it's just a giant key value uh, storage. You can use it for a whole bunch of different things and um, you'll, find it's, you'll find it all over the place. So the way the uh, taxonomy are 
stored actually in the index is different from, from Kraken 2. So there are a lot of things that are very similar to Kraken 2, but also different. So the taxonomies are stored as, as directed acyclic graphs. So in that way, you can, can look up like a taxonomy of a single organism, or if you, you identify the kamer fairly quickly. So it goes from the lowest to the highest taxonomy level. So it's always like, say, seven or eight steps that you need to infer a taxonomy. And then you can do some set functions to figure out what the most recent common ancestor is. I was curious about uh, a couple of things in, in that. What would be the, what, what would the output look like for, for Sepia actually? Because is it the sort of Kraken classification where each read gets assigned a thing and a, that hierarchical number of reads or bits or whatever part of chunks that support yes. a particular taxon and then like the number of absolute that, that uniquely map to a particular taxon? So it, it, that currently there are two outputs, like there's a summary file, but it doesn't use that hierarchical structure of crack. Is that just a straight uh, assignment to a particular genus of species, much like the Bracken yes, output? Exactly. So, oh, so that's good. Yeah. 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 And so what it gives you, it, it gives you like a, a taxon, like the number of reads that hit the taxon, the average Kamer hit similar or minimum minimizer came or dependent on what you're using uh, similarity per read and if you use the, the HLL so the hyperlog log function it will give you an estimate it will give you the total number of uh, minimizers or, or actually camers that were found for that specific um, taxon the cardinality and then the, the total number divided by the cardinality. So you can infer like kind of a, 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 a coverage per organism. Okay, that's good because that sounds more digestible than sort of your raw, the raw Kraken, like the Kraken report mm -hmm. that you get. Yeah. That can yeah. be, I mean, that's not something you can just palm off to someone else <laughs> who yeah. doesn't necessarily know how to interpret it. Um, yes, so it's good that you've got something that sounds a lot more like a lot more uh, human or digestible. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. So to keep everything like to keep the code fast, everything is like in, in, in U32 or whatever encoded like all your taxonomic designations. But then at the moment that you have so the summary file and the per read classification file. It, uh, everything is human readable. So I made sure of that. There is like a, a, a separate folder in the sepia repository that says scripts. And that's a, a Python script that actually generates chronoplots or the input for chronoplots from the, the classification file that, that sepia uh, generates and another file that I called the plus file. So it will give you not only the, the, the average Kamer similarity, but also the distribution of how those Kamer similarities um, are. So you can see what the, the curve looks like. And I made that in the past to, to uh, kind of see if I could do, use a, a machine learning algorithm to filter the noise uh, from the, the real hits. No, that sounds good. And definitely the corona output is, uh, professors like the corona output. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Nice and, and clickable for them. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Interactive. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think we kind of touched on this, but I am curious how, what happens if, there are reads that are very diverse, completely unrelated to your reference database. What is the 
chance that this program is going to falsely assign it to one of those taxons just because it has no idea. I think you touched on this yes. confidence value that would uh-huh. help, but what would that, be the propensity here? So the propensity of, of I think, read classifiers in, in general is to just assign it to the, the, the lowest taxon possible. That's where you get it. So that's where that, that Kamer similarity comes in. I mean, then if you give a closer look, it's usually like a very, very low Kamer similarity that really throws off those, those um, throws out those, those hits as being true hits for, for that organism. The other chance is that it just uh, gets classified as no hits. So I have specifically a no hits, it's category. But I mean, the, the danger is, is real. I mean, you, I've heard a couple of, of talks, and I think virology talks where, where they, they used classif- read classifiers and then were thrown off by, by weird or disturbing classifications, which turned out not, not turned out to be the things things they were yeah like uh you send your pestis on the subway or whatever that was yes yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> i mean exactly. that was a naive yeah. case but yeah yeah uh, can you test your software with that that would be a good test yeah i'm really curious <laughs> is that data set still out there or has it been retracted we can make up a data set i mean it's <laughs> not that hard mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> i think I you can find some I think there are some comparison papers out there for read classifiers, kind of like Assemblathon, but it's read classifathon. I can't remember mm-hmm. the name of the papers. And they do have some data sets that they use that are these kind of gotcha ones, which should throw off some of these tools. And so that that would be a good benchmark if, if Absolutely. you know, pulling those yeah. down and having a go at those. Well, then more seriously, maybe the first benchmark should be like something like the Zymo uh, mock communities, that kind of thing. Yep. Oh, the sky's the limit, right? We can yeah. play around, try and break it as much as we, we, <laughs> we can. Yeah. Now the code is out. We can stop uh-huh. trying to break it as much as we like. Right. What do you think that people should be looking at first when they get to the repo? We're like, we're coming up with all sorts of awesome things. Uh, just give the software a run and see what you can do with it. So the current implementation of, of the hyperlog log function is not something I wrote myself, so it makes my code very slow. I wouldn't do that. Uh, the other thing I, uh, the other thing I use it for is read classification of Oxford nanopore reads. Because you have that flexibility in setting those parameters that well, you can can really play with with the the ideal parameters to do read classification for for Oxford nanopore or noisy reads. Okay, so somebody first coming to your repo should try out their Oxford set on that. Yep, I'm curious. I mean, what you will see is that your average Kamer values are, of course, highly affected. They're not comparable to to what you will find for. Um, um, Illumina data, but it does a pretty good job, I think. All right. So I know that yeah. um, Minimap has a has an error model to cope with PacBio and Nanopore. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if that's a thing you can just flag. <laughs> yes. to... I, I I I should have a look at that. Definitely. So currently, I think the the best. Um, if I use smaller databases, for instance, just with a bunch like Calamari, if I make a Calamari database with just a camera size of 21, which is fairly small. So you can, can wiggle your way past those critical errors that, that Nanopore includes. It, you, that works pretty well. So smaller cameras definitely seem to do a, a good job as long as they're not too small, because then you get everything and that's not very valuable. Did you have like a two pass uh, hierarchy kind of thing? So maybe you start off with cameras of say 11 or something crazy small mm-hmm. and have a second pass. Yeah. 
Do you want to explain with, what right? Calamari is? Uh, yeah, it's a database of curated reference genomes, mostly bacterial, mostly foodborne, that we are using in-house over here, but I also have it up on GitHub. Um, and, and it's basically a, a, a list of accessions of these things and a script to download them and uh, documentation on how to build it for different databases. And I'm looking forward to documentation on how to build it for CPA. Oh, I just, I just found the data set that was used for the comparing the read classifiers. And that is the CAMI, I've just blanked on the name, the CAMI mm -hmm. data set. So that's critical assessment of metagenome interpretation. And I think the paper is in Nature Methods 2017, Skirba et al., if you want to look that up. Yes, absolutely. I mean, for the audience, you know, <laughs> if they want to use it themselves. Mm -hmm. Me too. I want to see this. I haven't seen this before. Oh, there's a couple of them. Um, there's Skirbertal, there's one uh, McIntyre 2017 in genome biology, which I think is the sequel to that. And then what I've played around with in the past is Chris Quince's uh, Desmond tool has a simulated set of different E. coli's all mixed together. So they're like oh, yeah. co-infection or mixed infection kind of things. And you can pull that down and use that as well uh, if you want to try that, because I don't think the other two data sets really have that intraspecies problem mm -hmm. yeah. uh, uh, in, those, in those papers. So between that, you, you know, if you're able to outperform everyone with those, then it's, your thing is golden yeah. if anyone, anyone wants to play around with those data sets. Yeah, I've, I have a feeling that that really strain level differences with read classifiers Unless you, you use like a, a really big camera size and all those things. So a former Otherwise colleague played I, around yeah. with, with doing interspecies comparison. Mm -hmm. And his trick was to weight the classification based on sort of these pools of the assignments. So basically the logic was if a camera or read or whatever was assigned to multiple strains in the same bucket in the same species and not assigned to outside of that then that was more convincing than one that was sort of mm -hmm. in you know across salmonella and e coli and something 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 yeah um that that was one of the tricks and there's a couple of other tricks he, he used but you do have to have a very good representative database of the species to be able to pull that apart properly. So you kind of have to understand mm -hmm. all population structure of the, of the species before you really do that effectively, which is annoying yeah. because you often don't have the time no, to do that. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, for old hat stuff like Salmonella and, and E. coli, like you can just pull those down there, all of those plenty mm -hmm. of publications in that space. But if you're yeah. doing something a bit weird, I don't know, like uh, oral pathogens, that's, that's a fun one. Tannerella, mm -hmm. uh, what's the other one? Tryptomonas, Tannerella, the stuff the dentist tells you to worry about. Uh -huh. um, those ones are more difficult to kind of get. Gingivitis? Yeah, these cause gingivitis. They, they, they're the ones that, the red complex uh, bacteria, if you look them up, they, they're the ones that cause gingivitis and periodontitis. And there's very little known about like we know there's these species and there's these communities where we don't really know much mm -hmm. about them. Not like the same way we know about enterics. Porphyromonas, that's the third guy. Oh yeah, Porphyromonas. Porphyromonas, Tannerella facitia and Tryptonema denticola. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, if you have a weird species, then intraspecies comparison becomes really tough. You just don't yep. know. Uh -huh. Oh yeah, so, so one thing I want to mention is uh, CPI will also check the consistency of your taxonomy. So if there are, for instance, if the same genus name is found in different lineages, it will flag it. So you can, can have a look at it or if that, that's the main thing. So if you combine a plant taxonomy with a bacterial taxonomy, you will find that there are some genus names that are used in both uh, 
domains of life. Yep. <laughs> yep. Is is candidatus one of those that is a bit trip difficult? Because um, they'll just suck that on yes. anything, right? Yep. That that would be really difficult. Um, I mean, and also bacteria or yeah. and, and also disease names as well, you know, of course pneumonia, mm-hmm. well, sure we'll call the species pneumoniae. Yep. So that's the thing is that that note notes in my taxonomy don't they they have the name is just the whole taxonomy string that fixes it, not just the genus name. I learned that quite pretty quickly when I started to combine um, plant and, and bacterial taxonomy with zoological taxonomy. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. people yeah. might not realize that the people who decide those things don't talk to each other. <laughs> no, they don't talk to each other. There are three, at least three different codes of, of nomenclature, or probably, I mean, there actually there are four, like the, the botanical and the, the bacteria and then the zoological and the viral. Yeah, we didn't get into like the whole part where you know so much about taxonomy and how this has led you into all this, actually. Uh-huh. Another time, I guess. Yep. Yep, that's a good subject for another time. Did we say, Hank, where, where the name sepia came from? Oh, yeah. So the name sepia is actually a, a, a tribute to Kraken because... Kraken is a big octopus, so a cephalopod. And sepia is also a cephalopod. And it refers to the rust color, like the, the, the pigment that you can make from its ink sac, which is rusty colored. <laughs> so it's it's a, a humble cephalopod compared to the big kraken. And it refers to the rust color. Oh, that's interesting. So cuttlefish. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Uh, the audio okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, thanks for a great discussion. This was a quick chat for Sepia, uh, the the classifier that Hinkenbacher created. There's always some interesting facts about these tools, so I'm glad that we talked it through, especially where the actual name came from. Um, I love diving into Rust and and everything else about that too. Uh, for those who are listening, you can check it out on GitHub. That'll be in the show notes. And that's all the time we have for today. See you next time. Thank you so much for listening to us at home. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or the platform of your choice. Follow us on Twitter at microbinfi. And if you don't like this podcast, please don't do anything. This podcast was recorded by the Microbial Bioinformatics Group. The opinions expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of CDC or the Quadrum Institute. 